listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. From Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, 1 to 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. So I know I've told you all before that I grew up in a family with four younger brothers, and growing up in a family with five boys, all kids, all kids in the 90s, we were obsessed with Calvin and Hobbes. You remember the comic strip? Yes, thank you. Still going strong. We especially resonated very strongly with Calvin and Hobbes' club. Gross. You know, the get rid of slimy girls club. Obviously, as Calvin said, slimy is redundant, but if you don't put it in, then you can't spell the word gross. So, uh, you know, I I was five boys. Like, I had no idea what a girl was. And so, whatever they were, they were slimy. Let's get rid of them. This is the club that Calvin and his stuffed tiger Hobbs put together in order basically to pick on the neighbor Susie. Lots of snowballs, lots of mud pies thrown Susie's way. And, And everything was great in the club until the day that Hobbs fell in love with Susie. Traitor. Traitor to Club Gross. And now Calvin faced a dilemma. Does he kick Hobbs out of Gross or change the rules of the club so girls are now okay? Well, in the comic strip, it was never resolved. Obviously, if that had happened in real life, you wouldn't have been able to just keep the question open. Obviously, if stuffed tigers came to life in real life, well, then we'd have a whole other set of issues. But anyway, it's a fundamental problem in any community, what Calvin and Hobbes were arguing about. How do you decide what to do with those who want to be part of a family or part of a community, but don't want to or can't live up to the family way of life? They can't live up to the rules of the club. They can't live up to or live by the community standards. This isn't a question of tolerance or intolerance. This is a question of definition. What does it mean to be part of a family or a community? What does it mean to, to live into the family way of life? And if you don't live into that family way of life, then how can you call yourself part of the family. Now, I'm not talking about gross anymore, obviously. I'm talking about the church, because the church is supposed to live a a way of life that is in line with, that is led by, that, that is walking with the Spirit, living out the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of everyone in the community individually and in the community as a whole in the way it does business, the way it cares for one another, the way it reaches out to the world around it. So what do you do when, as a community, you've decided we're going to live by these fruits, but then there's someone in the community who says, I don't want to, or I can't, or I've tried, and it's just so hard. What do you do with that person? 
That's the pastoral question that's behind the comments in these first five verses of Galatians chapter 6, the five verses we're looking at this week. And we're going to walk through these verses together. You'll notice as we go through them that we're dialing in on what I think is Paul's sort of key insight from these verses, that in this family, in the Messiah's family, in the church, in this Jesus community, no one walks alone. What do you do? How how do you address someone who's walking, but they're not walking in the fruit of the Spirit? Well, in this community, no one walks alone. Let me show you what I mean. Pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. I'm on page 1158, by the way. If you've grabbed that Bible, it's underneath the seat in front of you. Verse 1 starts like this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Now, right away, you'll notice the family language that Paul is employing, brothers, brothers and sisters. Other translations render this with the emotion that's behind it when they phrase it something like, my dear family. Paul considers himself part of their family, and they are part of his family. So we have to read the words that are to come in light of the emotion that Paul is exhibiting as he writes. He, he loves the, these people. He wants them to hear his words as coming from a brother. So this is a, this is a family meeting. It's a, it's a family concern. What do you do with those who don't want to? They want to be part of the family, but they don't want to live by the family way of life. What do you do? So he tells us, if, well, brothers, my dear family, if anyone is caught in any transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore him. And right away, we're like, okay, what do you mean by transgression? But remember the context. We've just come off a passage in which Paul is pleading with the churches in Galatia to be led by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to nurture the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the community, especially in contrast to the destructive power of the works of the flesh, what he called those giving in to the parts of ourselves, the unredeemed parts of ourselves that are just grasping for love or approval or acceptance wherever we can find it. And so we, we fraction ourselves, faction ourselves off from others. We set ourselves and our group up in opposition to others. We, we, we're looking for social superiority or spiritual superiority. That all comes from the works of the flesh. So if anyone is caught in or discovered in or giving into that kind of transgression, then they need to be restored. If someone's violating the moral standards of the community, remember these little house churches, one on this street and one on that street, 20, 30, maybe 40 people together, and one or two people start setting themselves up in sort of a prideful way of saying, hey, I, I'm the one who has this all figured out. Paul says, look, if, if you come across somebody who's doing that, who's threatening to destroy this community from the inside out, well, then you who are spiritual, the context, you who live by the Spirit, you're led by the Spirit, you're walking in the Spirit, you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, you who are spiritual, you have to restore this person. Because in these families, in these churches, no one walks alone. In Messiah's family, no one walks alone. So you walk with to restore someone. Now, to restore someone is Well, there's an implication there that they were at this place and have kind of fallen back from that. So restoring them is, well, it's restoring. It's taking them back to that place that they were before, bringing bringing them back into the condition they were in when they were an 
integral part of the community, giving, you know, giving off the fruit of the Spirit into that community, living that self-sacrificial lifestyle that he talked about at the end of chapter 5. Restoration is not the same thing as punishment. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, not punish such a one, not condemn such a one. He's not saying, hey, if you see somebody acting like this, I want you to name them and shame them. Point it out. Make sure everyone knows. No, he says, restore someone. Come alongside them. Walk with them as they practice the difficult, the difficult work of rejecting the desires of the flesh and living into the fruit of the Spirit. Restore them. But when you do that, when you act in that manner for someone, when you walk with them in their restoration, Paul warns, be careful. It's easy for you to start to think that, hey, you're kind of hot stuff here, getting to walk with other people and show them what it looks like to really follow Jesus. So at the end of verse 1, keep watch on yourself, uh, lest you too be tempted. Right? There's a temptation present whenever anyone walks, align, walks alongside someone else because the one leading the way, you know, showing how to work out the family way of life in specific situations and actual practice, that person can, person can very quickly, very easily, very naturally come to assume that they themselves are better than or more spiritual then, more godly than the person they're helping. If I'm out in front, it must be because I'm the best, right? Of course, the irony is that that spiritual pride is itself a violation of the family way of life, right? That came through clearly in the works of the flesh in the previous uh, chapter. But look ahead to verse 3. Paul lays it out for us. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I mean, in other words, if you think you're something because you're the one who's called on to walk with someone else, to, to lead them back, to restore them, or if you think you're someone because you're someone that people look up to, someone who shows what the spiritual life looks like, or, or you, you think you're someone because you're the one who's asked to lead a, a task uh, or a team or a goal, if you start to think that's what makes you someone, then that belief itself, right, the belief that you're worth something because of what you can do, because someone asks you to do something, like that in itself is a belief that proves you are, in fact, nothing. Stop deceiving yourself. You know, being an example isn't one of the fruit of the Spirit. Leadership isn't one of the fruit of the Spirit. It is far too easy for us to assume that because someone is an example or because someone is an effective leader, you know, someone who can get things done, who can make things happen, who can get people to charge a hill, who can hold a room captive with their voice, we're far too quick to assume that effective leadership is the same thing as spiritual leadership. And they're not the same thing. And if you think that they are, well, then Paul says, watch out. I mean, that temptation to spiritual pride is proof. You're living in the old family way of life, not the new family way of life. So keep watch on yourself, he says in verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, but 
okay, so we're called to do this. We're called to this restoration ministry, and we got to be careful, watch out that we're not also tempted, but just because there's danger present for someone who engages in the hard work of restoring a brother or sister doesn't mean we're let off the hook from actually doing the work, right? Often we're like, I don't know, that, uh, that's a slippery slope. I, I should probably just stay away from it. He says, no, look at verse 2. Verse 1, he's just said, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and keep watching yourself, but bear one another's burdens. Verse 2, this is a command. Bear one another's burdens. Carry each other's loads or burdens. If you're being led by the Spirit, if you're lining yourself with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, doing what the Spirit would have you do, then you will, you should bear one another's burdens. Now, in the immediate context, of course, this is referring to that hard work of restoring a brother or a sister, walking along with the person who has fallen away from the family way of life. This kind of work is, it's a vocation, it's a calling, it's a sacred duty to come alongside those, excuse me, come alongside and help those who are carrying heavy loads. It's a calling, and it, it, because it's easy for us to point out to someone else, isn't it? Like, hey, you know that thing you're doing? Stop. Come on, man, just be better. All right, now go and figure that out. Right? It's so easy to say, and it's more natural for us to say, hey, here's an area maybe you need to grow. Now go figure that out. Go and sin no more. It's a whole lot easier than, hey, come on, let's, let's figure this out together. But bearing one another's burdens is the way, Paul says, it's the way that we fulfill the law of Christ, the Messiah's law. Now, that's an interesting comment for Paul to make, uh, coming as it does near the end of a letter in which he has said over and over and over again that we are not bound by the law, Torah. Now he's saying here's the Messiah's law, the Messiah's Torah, his instruction. So what's he saying? Well, I think, I think there's a little bit of some layers of irony here. Actually, this, this whole passage, all five of these verses, kind of have this sort of teasing tone to them as he's telling them true things they need to think about, but also kind of laying, laying it on lightly, I guess I'll say. Uh, so there's a bit of irony, you know, as Paul's saying, hey, as you're living out the Spirit's leading in your own life, as you're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, you're leading your community into that kind of a spirit or that kind of fruit, you know, you don't get the choice of just expelling people who aren't as far along as you or who aren't as good at it as, as you are. That's way too easy. That's what the false teachers are doing, the people he's been arguing with this whole time. Now, there is a place, there's a time and a place for when you have to say like, hey, you're not really part of this family or this community, but that, that's not what he's getting at here. He's telling us here, no, you have to do the hard work of bearing with those who are figuring this out, those who have fallen behind in their growth, those who want to be part of the family and are struggling to figure out how to live like they're part of the family. I mean, that's a burden you bear, but guess who else made bearing burdens his way of life? Right, the Messiah. So if the Messiah were to make a law, what do you think his law would be? Probably bear one another's burdens, just as I have done for you. 
Like Paul's saying, do that and you'll fulfill his, you know, law. That's the whole thrust of this paragraph. As once again in this letter, Paul is balancing the twin demands within any church or any community or any family, the twin demands of both holiness, living by the family way of life, and unity, being together. We've said it before in this series. I'm going to go ahead and say it again. In any community, it is easy to have unity if you don't care about holiness, right? You just don't have any standard that anyone needs to live up to. You're just unified about, around being unified, I guess. Um, as long as everyone decides I'm here, then you're here and you're unified. But living the way of life we're called to, living the fruit of the Spirit, it, that's a whole lot more strand, stringent than just you know, do whatever you want. So it's easy to have unity if you don't care about holiness. On the flip side, it's easy to keep the community holy if you don't care about unity. As long as you have clear expectations, you can just put out, push out of your community anyone who doesn't live up to those expectations. I mean, the community will get smaller and smaller, sure, but at least it's pure, right? At least it's holy. And when it gets down to just you, then you know it's 100% in line. <laughs> Except for, of course, those times you don't live up to what you say. Well, anyway, you end up kicking yourself out of that kind of community. See, to maintain both holiness and unity requires an incredible commitment to both on the part of everyone in the community. So we have to maintain unity without sacrificing holiness. And we have to call for holiness without sacrificing unity. How do you hold both? Well, you humble yourself and you help one another achieve the holiness that's part of the family way of life. You restore a brother or a sister who's fallen, but watch out that you don't fall in the process. And like the Messiah, you bear one another's burdens as you carry the load of others figuring out what it means to live by the Spirit. Right? Because in this family, no one walks alone. You don't kick people out to go figure it out on their own just because they're a little bit behind from where you are, but nor do you draw everyone in and say, it doesn't matter, because it does. We've seen what happens to a community or a church that doesn't care if some of its members are given over to the works of the flesh, you know, indulging that sinful part that says, I want to be in charge. It rips the community apart. So these first three verses where Paul tells us, hey, restore, but watch out, bear one another's burdens. You know, if you think you're something when you're nothing, don't deceive yourself. Well, that, that warning to not think too highly of yourself leads almost immediately into verses four and five, which kind of hit the flip side of this equation, right? There's the bear one another's burden size, side, the mutual care for one another, but there's also an individual side to this as well. Look at verse 4. So he's just said, hey, you know, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. But on the other hand, each of you should test your own work. Well, then your reason to boast will be in yourself alone and, and not in your neighbor. Bit of an odd turn, but we should bump on that word work. Right? Every time the word work has shown up in this letter, it's been negative. The works of the law, the works of the law, the works of the law, the works of the flesh. And now Paul says, hey, check out your work and see how you're doing with it. 
Now, again, I think there's a bit of teasing and sort of some layers of, of irony laid into this, especially as we read further in the letter, even past the verses that we're considering this, uh, this morning. At first read-through, it comes across as ironic. You know, watch out that you don't think too highly of yourself because if you're not that great, you know, like prone to spiritual pride, well, then you're just deceiving yourself. But go ahead, test yourself. Find out what you, you know, if you actually are worth something. And hey, if you are, you know, boast in yourself, just not in other people. You know, so if you're going to boast, boast that God is using you in the lives of people you've helped restore back to the family way of life. You know, or boast in, hey, these people have received some benefit from my ministry. Or better yet, as you keep reading, better yet, boast that God has, you know, changed people's lives, that He's used you to do it. Or better still, if we jumped ahead towards the end of the letter, you know, we'd see that the false teachers are the ones who are boasting in all the lives they've changed, collecting individuals as trophies to their own spiritual effectiveness. Look at the size of the group I managed to influence. Paul says, look, they can go ahead and boast in that if they want. I'm going to boast in nothing but the cross. Nothing but the cross of the Messiah. Because if you're being led by the Spirit, if you are aligning yourself up with the Spirit, if you're growing in the fruit of the Spirit, then every time you see God using you to do something in someone else's life, the Spirit is going to nudge you right back to the cross. And your boast begins to sound a whole lot less like, I'm kind of a big deal, and a whole lot more like, I don't know why God would choose to use me. I mean, what am I bringing to the table? But, I, but He's given me gifts, He's given me abilities, and, and I, get, I just get to be part of pointing people to the Messiah. That's the kind of boasting that God's looking for. A boasting that looks at ourselves and says, yeah, this is actually what I'm kind of good at, and I get to use it to serve God but I don't know why he chose me. So if you're going to boast in anything, boast in, boast in yourself. Ironically, it sounds, you know, test yourself. See if you can stand on your own merits, but a little less ironically. And you know, as you see what God is using you to do, well, you're just going to keep finding yourself kneeling at the foot of the cross again and again. Because... No matter what you do in someone's life now, no matter what role you play in helping someone now, as good as that is, in the end, each person's going to have to bear their own load. That's verse 5. Verse 5, you know, for each will have to bear his own load. And it's a direct contradiction of verse 2, isn't it? Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, everybody has to bear their own burden. Now, maybe, you know, we could take the word burden and the word load and maybe make a whole meal out of the two different words, but they essentially mean the same thing. There's no real difference there. So that, that's not where we get out of this paradox. We get out of this paradox by realizing it's not actually a paradox. Remember, this is about family life, about a family way of life. And in every family, every community, every church, there's a balance between community support and individual responsibility. I mean, isn't there? Imagine a, imagine a community where everyone only cares for one another, bears one another's burdens. No one takes responsibility for themselves. They only take responsibility for others. What does that community look like? Well, it looks like we're just, we're constantly picking each other up. No positive growth is happening because all we're doing is rescuing one another from the failures of our inability to take individual responsibility. 
right? Nothing's growing, nothing's happening. But on the other hand, think of a community where everyone is only responsible to themselves and doesn't care about anyone else. They only watch out for themselves. That's called anarchy, where there's no cooperation except for the cooperation driven by self-interest. Oh, sure, yeah, I'll cooperate with you because I'm going to get more out of it than you are. I'm going to get more than I give. There's no such thing as sacrifice for a mutual good or a common good. There's no community growth. There's just individuals barely clustered together, I guess like marbles in a bag, no connection with one another. Obviously, both extremes have to be avoided in any family or any community or any church. Both extremes have to be avoided if you're going to function well. That's what this short paragraph is getting at, the the mutual back and forth that every church has to figure out how to do. How do you be both simultaneously supportive of one another and individually responsible for your own task, your own vocation, your own growth? Some churches and individuals are more susceptible to the sort of individualistic, I'm just, you know what, I'm just here to, to, I'm only watching out for myself. When I show up here, it's, it's about me and it's about, what I, it's about what I get, but it's about what I give too. And I'm just going to give you what I think you need, whether you need it or not, because this is what I do. This is what I'm here for. On the other hand, some churches, some individuals are more susceptible to a kind of laziness that sort of hopes you can show up and let everyone else do the work, sort of like group projects back in school. When I die, I want my casket bearers to be everyone I've ever done a group project with so they can all let me down one last time. (laughs) That was not in my notes. (laughs) I just hate group projects, you know? Well, anyway, what was I talking about? Um... Right, laziness. You're hoping everyone else is going to do the hard work so you can just show up and be served. Like, hey, I got a lot going on right now. You don't know what life is like for me. So when I show up on a Sunday or when I show up to a community group, boy, I sure hope y'all brought the potluck because I didn't have time to make anything. Boy, I sure hope y'all are ready to serve me because I certainly don't have any time to serve you. Now, there's some times in our lives where that is the reality, okay? And I, I don't want to, you know, shame the, the, the actual reality because I've been there and you've been there as well. But we have to balance both individual responsibility and mutual support. And we have to avoid the extremes on both sides because in this family, no one walks alone, but everyone has to walk. Everyone walks even if no one walks alone. I've only ever uh, run in one actual official half marathon. It's the kind where you pay money to get a t-shirt and someone to tell you at the end how slowly you went. <laughs> and as I lined up that first time in my entrance class, I was totally green. I had no idea what to expect, didn't know what I was getting into. And so I was intrigued when I saw, you know, you're watching everybody go ahead of you. And I saw a guy go and he was holding a pole and there was a sign on top of it that said something like 145. And I realized, oh, that, that's the pace guy. Like if your goal, your individual goal in running that half marathon is to run it in an hour and 45 minutes or less, then stick with that guy. Because if you cross the finish line with him, you know you're going to cross the finish line at 145. Now, at the end of the race, you're still responsible for your own time, right? 
You have to do the work to get into shape, in good enough shape in order to run that 145. But during the run, while you're in the race, when you're struggling to maintain the pace, when you can't keep your arms and legs moving fast enough and you're slipping away from your time goal and you're seeing it on your watch as you're running, the best way to get back on pace is to see that guy in front of you and catch up with him and stay with him. Because it's easier to run faster when you're running with someone. See, you don't, run, you don't have to run the race alone, even if at the end of the race, you alone are responsible for your time. That's how it works in the church. I mean, each of us is responsible for ourselves before God at the end, but while we're getting there, we've run together. Right? In this family, no one's left behind because no one walks or runs alone. In the Messiah's family, no one walks alone. That's what Paul's trying to get across to this church in Galatia, and I think he has the same message for us. In this church, no one walks alone. So, what are we going to do about that? Paul is giving instructions, you know, to a church that's just racked by disunity. We talked about that last week. We're not as disunited as they were, but there's still some things we can apply to our family way of life. And, and three things came to mind as I was thinking out, how do we do this here? First is, we have to recognize that part of what keeps any church unified and holy is that there are those, there are some within our midst who can exercise a genuine and a humble spiritual insight and can then, you know, humbly and gently exercise a ministry of admonition. In other words, there, there have to be people, for a church to stay healthy, there have to be people who can very softly and gently get in your face and say, I mean, I'm, I'm just like you guys, I don't, I don't really enjoy accepting criticism or critique either. But when someone with a genuine and proven spiritual insight tells me that I need to do better, you know, whether it's, it's my wife or it's one of the other pastors or one of our elders, you know, when they pull me aside and say, hey, you, you were angry with that person and they didn't deserve it. Or, you know, what you said, I know what you meant, but you need to know it, it was pretty offensive to me and people like me, right? Or, hey, what, what you just said to that person, um, I think you hurt them, even if you don't think you hurt them. You, you need to go find out if you're okay. Oh, man, I hate hearing stuff like that. But when you do, it, when I do, I try to remind myself, I mean, it's a gift. It is a gift of genuine humble spiritual restoration that builds a community, especially for someone in my position, because if no one were willing, no one were, were insightful enough to say to me like, hey, that's the work of the flesh, then I'm just going to end up tearing this community apart. Humble admonition is the gift of restoration that keeps the body healthy. So we all have to have or be at least growing in the courage, the willingness it takes to restore one another, to say hard things to one another, to not just hope and pray that the Holy Spirit is going to make it clear to that person so I don't have to have a hard conversation. That's not bearing one another's burdens. 
Not as we're called to, not as Paul tells us to do. So we have to be open ourselves to not only giving, but receiving the mutual admonition that keeps this body, this family healthy. But second, and this one's harder, we cannot forsake virtue in defense of virtue. You can't give up the fruit in order to preserve the fruit in someone else. I glossed over it earlier. I alluded to it a couple times, but what I find most fascinating about these verses is that when, when Paul tells us to restore one another, to restore this person, he says to do so in a spirit of gentleness. Where have we heard that word before? The fruit of the Spirit, that's right, gentleness. It could be translated humility or meekness as well. It takes all three English words to capture the one Greek word. I don't have time to get into that. But when we come to a brother or a sister who is trapped by the desires of their fallen nature, then we, don't, we don't have to dominate them or condemn them. We don't come to them in a judgmental, prideful, critiquing spirit. We come to them in the spirit of gentleness. And I'm sure by that, Paul means all of the fruit, all nine flavors, not just the one. We come to that person in a spirit of love, in a spirit of peace, a spirit of humility. I mean, that applies inside the church, but it applies outside the church as well. When we come to those who we feel are actively aligned against us, trying to defeat us, threatening us, then we don't sink to their level in order to defend ourselves. I mean, if you think you have to give up the commands of Jesus to turn the other cheek, for example, because that's what it takes to protect the people of Jesus, then you're not following the way of Jesus. The church is called to defend virtue, yes, but to defend virtue virtuously. You don't get to spoil the fruit in order to keep it fresh. That doesn't work that way. So if you have been called, and some of us have, to this role in the church of restoring others, bringing them back to living in the family way of life, you know, walking alongside brothers and sisters, helping them come back to a life in the Spirit, but you go about doing it in a way that looks nothing like the fruit of the Spirit... Watch out for yourself. You're deceiving yourself, Paul would say. So, we exercise mutual responsibility. Yes, it is a responsibility. It's a vocation. It's a calling. But we restore one another to the fruit of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit, not without it. That's the second. We give and receive mutual admonition, but we do so with the fruit, not without it. Third and finally... We fulfill doing this, bearing one another's burdens in this way, we fulfill the Messiah's law. We fulfill the Messiah's law. If, if the law of the Messiah is to bear one another's burdens, well, okay, we'll ask ourselves the question, how are we doing with that? When we show up here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, what's our goal? Do we show up looking for people to shift burdens onto? Do we show up looking for people whose burdens we can take on ourselves. Now, there's a time and a place in our lives for both. Sometimes we show up here, and it's all we have got to just show up. And we walk through the door, and someone with genuine spiritual insight looks at us and just 
it gives a smile and says, hey, come on, let me help you out. But I think for us, the temptation is usually in the other direction. I'm here, why aren't you watching my kids yet? I'm here, that sermon has seven seconds left and he doesn't sound like he's landing in the plane. <laughs> right? I'm here, but you know, that music, I would have preferred if we'd kind of done, whatever, you fill in the blank. What are we here for? Because we serve a God who, when He saw the burden of sin we were carrying, sent His Son to come here and take that burden off of us. So what do you do when you show up in the family of God? Show up to dump or show up to take? Because when we take one another's burdens onto ourselves, we fulfill the Messiah's law. This past week, Pastor Tom and I were at a conference, and one of the speakers said he was talking about this theology class that he has with young guys who are just loving to read these thick books written by old dead guys, and they're loving to talk about theology. And he said, you know what? If you're willing to spend hours and hours and hours doing that, but you won't get up 30 minutes early to give somebody a ride to church who needs it, are you even saved? What are we here for? if not to bear one another's burdens in the way Christ bore our burden on himself. Because in this family, in the Messiah's family, in this family, no one walks alone. So who are you walking with? Father, as you have called us to walk with one another, we are mindful of the fact that you yourself are walking with us in the Spirit indwelling us, guiding us into the fruit, in your Son, our brother, as our example and as our mediator, and you as the one we want to come to know, you are walking with us. So as we walk, Father, give us the strength of your Son to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill his law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.